Christian Church. Good morning to everyone who's with us this morning in person or whether you're watching online. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new around here, we especially want to welcome you. We're glad that you could join us today. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles or your device, whatever you're using, Matthew chapter 3 is where we will be today. Matthew chapter 3. We are finishing up our Advent season. So uh, this will be our last Sunday before Christmas. So Merry Christmas if I happen to not see you or uh, get to talk to you between now and Friday. But it is five days away. This is your last warning as parents to buy all the presents you need to buy. But we are five days from Christmas. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17 as we finish up this Advent series. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to Jordan, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen, amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the Son of God, the Son of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to you in your word today and are reminded of just the glory of who your son Jesus is, sometimes we can take for granted uh, the person we have been given, that we have been given the very Son of God as our Savior. And in that gift, as we celebrate this season, uh, we realize there is so much, so much that we are are given in who he is and what he has done for us and the identity that we take on because of who he is. And so, Lord, I pray as we look deeply into just this brief moment, uh, your scriptures, I pray, God, you would help us to understand, help us to grasp what you're saying to us, and may our ears and our eyes be open to how you want to work in us. Oh, Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and our minds to transform us. Move in ways that we aren't able to do ourselves, that we would clearly be able to say, that was God, that God showed up in my life to change my heart and my mind, to change my love for him, to change my love for other people because of his work in me. May it be undeniably your work, God, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. Uh, so this may be up for debate, but... I believe that one of the best things to come out of this pandemic we've been in was the last dance. The last dance, if you're not familiar with it, it, it could be debatable if you're not a major basketball fan, but the last dance is a Netflix documentary series on the incredible journey of the 1990s Chicago Bulls. The epic dynasty of Michael Jordan, sorry if you're LeBron fans, but You'll never be Jordan, right? It's just, you'll just never be Jordan. 
But you see the unfolding of the drama and the behind the scenes, and they had followed the team for 10 years, I believe, and they're doing all these interviews and, and uh, exclusive footage, and we had been waiting years. It, it had been literally locked up for years to see the last dance. And so you get to see you know, the conflict with Scottie Pippen and just the fascinating and strange life of Dennis Rodman and you get to see the incredible coaching of Phil Jackson and some of his backstory and all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm eating it up, right? When it comes out, they drop the new episode on Sunday night. And I'm sitting in front of the TV, waiting on Sunday night, watching it with some friends and soaking all this, you know, memory up, all the, the glory days of basketball in the 90s. And uh, as I'm watching it and it comes to the final episode, I'm thinking, you know, what, what were all these guys doing now? You know, this is, this is years ago. I wonder how they're doing. And so I start Googling, you know, different players on the team and how they're doing. And, of course, I want to see how's Michael Jordan doing. And I find this article that ran when, when Jordan turned 50. Just a few years ago, Jordan turned 50, and ESPN, the magazine, did this long, extended issue on Jordan turning 50. And they interviewed him about what it's like to be 10 years out of retirement and how his life was going and kind of get his feedback and his reflections on what his new life looked like. And I found it to be fascinating as he reflected on his own relationship with basketball. And this is what he said. He said, for the past 10 years since retiring, I've been running, moving as fast as I can from one thing to the next, trying to keep distance and create distractions. I can't get away from realizing how tied my identity is to the game. I keep wondering, could I play again at 50? What am I doing? Who am I? How can I ever find peace away from the game when it's who I am? When it's who I am. I don't know how Jordan's doing now, but when he was turning 50, he was having an identity crisis. He's wondering, who am I without this thing that made my life? Maybe you've been there before. You, you, you've been there in your life. Maybe you haven't turned 50 yet, but what once was no longer is. right? You had a season in your life where things have now changed, and you're wrestling with, who am I? You're wrestling with deeper questions about, you know, what's life going to be like when the kids move out of my house? What's life going to be like on the other side of my divorce, and I realize I'm single again? What's life going to be like when I get out of this season that I find myself in and things completely change? It, it terrifies me to think about what my life might be like because I look back and I think that was my life. All the things that I did and the people I knew and all the different things that were going on in that season, it made up who I am and this circumstance... This change of circumstance is challenging my identity. I mean, identity is powerful, isn't it? Identity gives you a sense of belonging. It, it gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of meaning in life. And when you come up against these crises and circumstances changing, whatever it may be in your life, it can challenge your identity and just shake you a little bit. It gives you this sense of, I don't, I don't know what I'm here for anymore. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I don't even know who I am. And if you've never been there before, it can be a scary place to be where you can 
realize one day, I'm not even sure I know who I am. And this, this is what the Bible is getting to here is, is this sense of deep identity that's unshakable, unchangeable. It's this identity in the gospel. And so as we continue this series, we're, we're finishing up the series for Advent. We've been calling it Good News. And Matthew, in, in the beginning of his gospel, has been centered all around identity. The identity of a child. Who is this child that's born in Bethlehem? Who's this child that the Magi say he's a king? Who's the child that Herod interprets him as a threat? Who's this child that the angels came and they said he's a savior? Who is this child? And so everybody's got different opinions about his identity and what he's come for and what he's, what he's going to become. And then Matthew jumps right in in chapter 3, and Jesus is now a fully grown man, and we find out finally who he is, not from other people's opinions, but from God himself. And what we find out, when we find out Jesus' true identity, we find out that who he is affects who we are. In other words, in order to find out who you are, to find your identity, you have to know who Jesus is. You have to know who God says the Son of God is. And so that's what I want to look at this morning is this gospel-centered identity. How does the gospel tell us who we are because of Jesus? And so first we have to know uh, who we're not, who we're not. And so if you're taking notes, number one, the first thing we're going to look at is knowing who you're not. Look at verse 13 with me. Let's jump into the text. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, like I said, Matthew kind of skips over Jesus' childhood, which is fascinating. We don't have time to get into that, but Luke gives us a little bit of Jesus' childhood. But we don't get much. It goes from Jesus the baby to Jesus the grown adult. And Jesus has been living in obscurity, basically no one knowing who he was or what was going on for 27 years, you know, 30, almost 30 years. And here he is in Nazareth waiting patiently for the time to come. He's been waiting for the moment he had come for, and now the time arrives. And everybody is down at the Jordan River, and there's this incredible move of God happening. Maybe the greatest revival you see in the Bible since the time of Ezra. You see this massive turn towards God. John is at the Jordan River, and he's calling people to repentance, which means to turn from your sin to God, and people are doing it by the hundreds. They're coming to the river. They're being baptized. John is preaching. The Messiah is coming, and so the unthinkable is happening. The whole nation is repenting from their personal sins, their national sins. They're getting ready for the Messiah, and then the Messiah comes, and he says, I need to be baptized. John is confused. Now, if you're not confused, it's all right. Maybe you're a little ahead of John the Baptist, but John is confused. Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, and the Bible says that he tried to prevent him. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm supposed to be baptizing you. Why are you coming to me to baptize you? I thought this was a baptism of repentance for sins, and you're sinless. I thought this was a baptism of preparation, and we are preparing for you. Jesus, what in the world are you doing? What, what is happening here? Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. But I, I want
Check, check. There we go. We good with this? You got it, Ben? All right. Thank you, sir. Um, there we go. You never know what the Lord's doing. There we go, John. Um, anyways, so he was, where was I? John is confused, just like me. So John is confused. He's trying to figure out what is going on. Why is Jesus coming here to say, I need to be baptized? But we're going to come back to that in a moment. It's all right. We'll, we'll just use this. Um, he says, uh, he's confused, but we're going to come back to that in a moment. What I want to focus on for a second, I want to focus on his response. I want to focus on the fact that there's something about John the Baptist's self-awareness that you see his identity. You see in this moment, you see that he is, uh, he's caught off guard because of how he sees himself. Now, you've got to go back in the story. Uh, earlier in the story, while John was baptizing people, you can imagine the religious leaders are very upset. Here's this guy out here with no spiritual authority, no training within the, the official religious system. He's just out there in the wilderness, literally a voice crying in the wilderness, telling people God is coming. And he's crazy. He's wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts and honey. And, and so people are upset. They're like, what is he doing? They finally get so angry, they go out there. And they're not there to, you know, they're not there to repent. They're not there to be baptized. They're there to question. And they say, who are you? That's what they say to John the Baptist. Who are you? Tell us your identity. And I love what John says. He doesn't tell him who he is. He tells him who he's not. He says this, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. You see all these crowds, you see these people gathering around me. Don't be confused. I am not the Christ. Now listen, gospel-centered identity first has to know who you're not. You are not the Christ. Say it with me. I am not the Christ. That may sound a little strange. That, that may sound like, hey, hey, pastor, I don't go around telling people I'm the Messiah. It may sound a little obvious, might sound a little strange. You might think in the back of your head, you know, they lock up people who say that. I don't, I don't put myself in that category, but let me tell you, you may not say it, but you and I, we live it. We live as if we believe we're the Christ. One of the authors who's written about this, his name is Zach Eswine, and he says it like this. He says, we grasp constantly for the divine attributes. The divine attributes, what that means is the things that make God God, we try to grasp them. We try to hold on to those and, and make those part of who we are. And you might still not understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. Uh, we grasp for what the Bible calls omnipresence, what what means the living like we can be everywhere all the time for everyone. In other words, you, you, know, you have no margin in your life. You're constantly saying yes to everything. You're constantly doing as much as you can. You fill out every single minute of your life to make sure you don't miss anything. Because you're trying to get everywhere and be everywhere and be everything to all people at all times and you're exhausted. There's no peace in your life. There's no stillness in your life. You're just everywhere all the time, never stopping. You're grasping. You're grasping for what makes God God, which is his omnipresence. 
Or maybe for you, it's, it's his omnipotence, where he's all-powerful. You're, you're trying to stick your nose into things that you should never be involved in. You're trying to fix people and things that you can't fix. You're trying to be somebody and have influence that you don't need to have. You're grasping. You're grasping. Or maybe for you it's omniscience, right? God is knowing, all-knowing. He, he knows all things at all times. And, and so you, when you come up against conflict, you kind of you know, bristle up a little bit and say, who, who are you to question me? Who are you to question my knowledge on this thing? Maybe it's at your job or it's in your family or whatever. But anybody who challenges you, you want to be the know-it-all. Grasping. You see how it works? In our life, we are grasping to be God, and what happens is sin gives us a messianic complex. A messianic complex where only God can be God. Only Christ can be Christ. Only the Savior can be the Savior. And so therefore, you and I, we need to, on a daily, be reminded of who we're not. Who we're not. Every day we need to get clear in the depths of our soul that we are not the Christ. Otherwise, we start living a life we were never designed to live. We start living a life that was designed for Jesus to live for us and not us for Jesus. And it's very subtle. It's us trying to be God rather than trust God. The, the paradox of a gospel-centered identity is you have to actually lay down your false identities first. All the things you've tried to be, all the things you wished you would be, all the things you hoped you would be, you have to come to God and say, I'm laying that down because that's not me. I can't know it all. I can't be everywhere. I can't uh, change everything. I have to know that I am not the Christ. But thanks be to God, there is one. There is one who is the Christ. And this is what you got to know next. So, so when you know who you're not, you begin to know who you need. And this is the second point, knowing who you need. Look at Jesus' response in verse 15. Jesus answers John. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Now we're going to return to that question, right? I said put a pin in that question, which is fascinating. Why in the world would Jesus get baptized. I mean, Jesus is sinless. He's, he's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one who was promised. Why is he getting baptized? Well, in Jesus' own words, he says this, to fulfill all righteousness. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus, if you remember last week, is standing in the place of us as he comes. Right? So Jesus is saying, I am coming to identify with my people, sinners like you and me. I'm coming to identify and show solidarity with my people in their place. So he's the embodiment of God's redeeming purposes in a person. And so like Israel, where Israel was God's people, Israel was God's son, Israel had to walk through the judgment waters on their way to the promised land. Jesus has to do the same. Jesus has to go through the judgment waters of baptism and take on this identity of a sinner so that he can come out with God's favor. But he comes out with God's favor not just for himself, 
but for us. This is what he's saying. He's saying to John, the reason I have to be baptized is not because of me. It's because of you. I don't need this. You need this. That's what he's saying to John. He's saying, I'm doing this because of you. And then when John hears his reasoning, I love this, it transforms his response. John, who was refusing to baptize Jesus, he now says, I have to. It's his repentance. Matthew simply says, then he consented. I love that. The Greek word there means to let go, to leave behind, to release. Right? John is describing this, this uh, or Matthew's describing this, this moment in John's life where John is, is letting go. He's letting go of, of this reality where before when Jesus came, he tried to correct Jesus. Before when Jesus came, he tried to tell Jesus what to do. Before when Jesus came, he tried to say, no, 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 Jesus, this is how it works. But now he realizes I'm the one who needs to receive. In other words, there's this transition, this, this swap that happens where he goes from this arrogant identity that believes Jesus needs me to a humble identity that believes I need Jesus. And so he consents. He lets go. See, gospel-centered identity knows who you are. It knows who, sorry, it knows who you need. It knows who you need. In her book, Alone Together, there's an MIT professor named Sherry Turkle who claims that the emergence of social technology uh, is changing the way our human relationships work. Now, you may not know all of her research. I don't know all her research, but we can all pretty much agree on some level that is happening. Right, they're, they're, The social technology that we have is changing the way we interact with one another, the way we interact as a, as a group, as a people group, all those different things. It's changing that. You, you can sense that. Well, she does all the research to find out how that is actually happening and, and to quantify some of that. And so she writes this academic work on, on how that's working, right? But in her work, she interviews people to ask them what their experiences are. And it's fascinating to hear people's feedback on what they've experienced in relationships. That over the time, as technology is changing the way we interact, these people are expressing probably what you feel, this changing uh, expectation. And so she interviews this one guy named Wesley, who's a 64-year-old man who had recently been divorced. And he said that he feels technology is changing the way he has friendship and relationship. But this is what he says. He says this, Technology could help me anticipate my emotional cycles, but never criticizes me. If someone loves me, they care about me in my ups and downs, and that's so much pressure. I don't want to be a burden to anyone, neither do I want them to be a burden to me. You catch that? It, it, hence the title, she calls her book Alone Together. Alone together. In other words, he's, this man Wesley is saying probably what you feel, which is, I feel alone, but I want to be with somebody, and I'm terrified that if I open up, it's going to destroy the relationship. And so rather than be honest, I'll stay alone, and we'll pretend like we're together. We'll pretend like we have real relationship, because to be really together admits that we're needy. Admits that, that I have issues. I've got problems. 
And the reality is you do, right? The reality is we're all in great need. I mean, you can get on social media and you can make your Instagram look beautiful and you got every filter and you got the light just right and you've got, it looks like every week you're on vacation. It looks like, it's just the highlights of your kids and it's just, you know, Instagram world, whatever that is. But we all know your life is jacked up. We all know that your life is not what it looks like on Instagram. And you're not as smart as the people you quote on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You're just not. You're tired. You're anxious. You're worried. You're exhausted. You're sinful. You're broken, right? That's what's going on, but we don't want to share that because we'd rather have the, the uh, perception that we're, we're together, that we're living in community. Because we've got likes and we've got views and we've got friends and it feels as if there's people around us in our life, but no one really knows what's going on. And so if you were to peel back what your life really looked like, you would see a lot more need. You would see a lot more uh, difficulty. But it's hard to be vulnerable. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it so hard to be vulnerable? It's because we're afraid. It's fear. It's the fear of being honest. It's the fear of sharing. But, but specifically, fear is the fruit of unbelief. It's unbelief. And with people, it's, it's the, the lack of believing that, that people will do well with the information I give them. Right? It's scary to open up and share what's really going on, the darkness in your life, the the hidden things in your heart with somebody, you're not sure if they're going to use that against you. You're not sure if they're going to judge you. You're not sure what they're going to do. And let me tell you, that can't happen. So I'm not saying you should share everything at all times with every person. But here's what really gets dangerous, is you take that fear of what people will do and you put it on God, and then you're never vulnerable with God. You project onto God the bad experiences you've had with people. And so your, your prayer life, your, your life with God is, is just shallow. It's just surface. It's, hey, God, I'm checking in. Can you take care of the kids today? Hey, God, you know, I need to get a raise at the job. Or It's just shallow. You're not really opening up your need to God. And here, listen, listen to me carefully. The, the gospel is an invitation to freedom. And it's a specific kind of freedom. It's a freedom where you can open up and share your real need. Your real vulnerable brokenness. You share the heartache. You share the fears. You share the anxiety you're feeling. You share the sin that you're caught in. You, you share the struggles that you can't figure out how to get past. You share that with God because He cares. 1 Peter 5 says, what? Right? Cast all your cares. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. What he's saying in that is, is, is that what's true about Jesus is greater than what's true about me. Some of y'all didn't catch that. What's true about Jesus is greater than what's true about me. 
And so I don't care what's true about you. You may have done terrible things. You may have terrible feelings. You may have terrible situations at home. Whatever it may be, that may be true. But what's true about Jesus is greater than anything in your life. And so you can share with him because he's stronger. He's wiser. He's greater. He's more powerful. He's more persistent. He's more determined. He's more gracious. Whatever it is that you have, your need is not too great. That, that's what he's inviting John into. That's what he's inviting you in today, is, is to know that your identity in him means that you have somebody that you need, and he wants you. He wants you. And so once you know who you're not and who you need, you're ready to receive uh, who we are. And so this is the last point, knowing who you are. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. I love this. I wish we had time to get into what all this imagery is showing. But uh, we see here as Jesus is being baptized, uh, the Trinity is present. You see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is descending down on Jesus like a dove. And this is incredible biblical imagery going all the way back to Genesis where in the creation account, you see the Spirit hovering over the water as God is creating the world out of nothing. And so here again, the Spirit is hovering over the water just like he did in Genesis 1 where creation was happening, but he also did it in Genesis with the, the Noah account where you've got Noah uh, on the ark and God has brought judgment on the world. He's flooded the world, and what happens? He sends a dove who hovers over the water to tell Noah the judgment is over and I'm restoring creation. And so you see both. You see the beginning of creation. You see the restoration of creation. And now at Jesus' baptism, you see a new creation. You see the Spirit come and hover over the waters, but this time he's coming to say, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something greater than before. I'm bringing about a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. But how's it going to happen? You hear the voice from heaven say in verse 17, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now this is the voice of the father from heaven quoting the scriptures. This is a combination of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. In Psalm 2, you see that the Messiah is the king who's called the beloved son of God. And then in Isaiah 42, you see that the Messiah is called the suffering servant who will please the father by his sacrifice. And so you see these two combined. You see the paradox of Jesus' identity that he's both king and he's servant. He's both Lord and he's savior. He's the king sent from heaven to bless the nations, but in order to bless the nations, in order to accomplish his mission, he would have to die as the suffering servant. And so he's the beloved son of God, but also the suffering servant. This is who he is. This is his identity. He's both king and savior. And this is who he knew he was. Jesus knew as he went to Calvary that his baptism in water was only a sign of his baptism in wrath to come. Jesus knew in order to fulfill all righteousness, he had to become all unrighteousness. Jesus knew that to identify with sinners meant that he would die a sinner's death. Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God with the smile of God. 
And so the father was pleased with his life for us. The father was pleased with his death for ours. The father was pleased with his victory for ours. And Jesus knew who he was. He was the beloved son of God, king and servant. And so gospel-centered identity is rooted in his identity, who he is. It knows who you are. In the 1990s, there was a movie uh, playing or, uh, called Air Force One with Harrison Ford playing the president. And uh, there's this climactic scene at the end that's kind of a powerful moment in the movie where Harrison Ford is playing the president and the, the plane gets hijacked. Now, this isn't just any plane. This is Air Force One. This is the president's plane. This is the specialized aircraft designed only for the president. And so it gets hijacked by this group, and, you know, it's, it's an action movie, and so somehow the president has the skills to get out of the situation. I don't know how that works, but he's fighting off the bad guys, taking them out one by one, and after all the bad guys are on the floor, they realize we got a bigger problem. The pilot was taken out and no one's going to land the plane. So they start to panic. They start to you know, worry, how are we going to get this plane from crashing? And so they come up with this rescue plan, this daring rescue plan, where they're going to bring another plane in, this small plane that will send a zip line to the other plane, and they'll get people to come across, right? So they bring this little tiny plane in. They throw the zip line. It works. One by one, they're bringing these passengers. And then it comes time for the president. He's the last one to come. And, of course, right as he's about to get on the zip line, the last bad guy that no one knew about was hiding in some closet. And so he jumps out and starts to attack Harrison Ford. And then the camera cuts away. And all you see is Air Force One diving into the ocean and everybody gasped, and you don't know what happened. Did he make it on the zip line? Did he make it out of the plane before it crashed? And everybody's panicking. There's no information. And then you hear out of the silence, you hear this call from the radio of the other plane. And the other plane, the little tiny plane, says Liberty 2-4 is changing call signals. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. Did you catch that? Liberty 2-4 is changing call signals. It's now Air Force One, which means the president made it on the plane. Because when the president makes it on the plane, it changes the status of that little tiny airplane. See, what he's saying is, is his presence changes his identity. And this is how the gospel works. The, the gospel is all about presence. The gospel is all about the presence of Jesus changing our identity it's not you it's him it's not what you've done it's what he's done that's how the gospel works that the 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 identity of Jesus as the beloved son becomes ours because of him his presence changes us forever that once we were defined by our sin but now by our savior once we were defined by our mistakes but now by our master once we were defined by our failures but now by our faithful lord that is the radical transformation of the gospel. That you go from being a lost, hopeless, burdened sinner to the Son of God. The Son of God. That's the identity that God gives you. Beloved Son, well-pleasing, overflowing with joy. That's how God sees you. And so I want to ask you today this incredibly important question what do you think of when you think of how God speaks over you?
Because that, that is the most telling thing about how you understand the gospel. Does he say over you as a Christian, I can't, I can't wait till he gets his act together. She's just, she needs to do better. She needs to do this. She needs to do that. I can't believe she did that. How dare he think he could do that with what I've done for him? And I can't stand all that. Is it this constant more, 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 better, better, better? Or as the Bible says, does he speak over you his favor? Does he sing over you? Does he say what he says about his son Jesus at his baptism? This is my child in whom I am well pleased. This is my child who I, I can't wait to see them. I can't wait to hear their voice. I, I, I know they've screwed up, but I see them as I see Jesus. Because their status is completely transformed in what Jesus has done for them. He's taken their place, and so all I have for them is pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure. Because that's what he really says. Do you believe it? That's who you really are. Do you believe it? See, some of you this morning, you need to be reminded of that, but I think many more of you, you need to, you need to believe that for the first time. You need to believe that who Jesus is and what he's done is your identity. Yes, it's true that you've messed up. Yes, it's true that you've rebelled against God completely and you deserve nothing but hell, but it's more true that he has given you a new status. It's true that God removes all of that and sees you as he sees his son. And the gospel is the good news that you can't mess that up. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is believe it. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we want to hear your true voice today. We want to hear what you say over us, what you sing over us. Not in our sin, but in our Savior. God, today as, as we consider Again, the birth of our Savior. Let us know that the one born in a manger was baptized in our place so that we could have his identity, that we could have the status of Son of God. He was the firstborn among all of us, that behind him might come a whole people. And so, God, that is us, and we celebrate that, and we rejoice in that. And I pray today as we turn our hearts towards that, that you would... Make it real. Make it, by the power of your Holy Spirit, something deep within our soul that we know, that we know, that we know. And we'll do it for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.